Hello and welcome to Cloud Automation Weekly. My name is Thorsten Höger and I'm here to talk about automating your AWS cloud infrastructure. Today I'm joined by Christy Perold to talk about cloud architecture. Christy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. For folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, so currently I am a principal software engineer at Liberty Mutual Insurance. Uh, I actually work on our serverless enablement and development team. Uh, I was also recently recognized as an AWS uh, serverless hero. Uh, I do a lot of work in the serverless space, a lot of podcasts like these, um, speaking, blogging, uh, all sorts of exciting stuff. Um, and I also uh, recently finished a master's degree in computer engineering with focuses on robotics, cloud, and data analytics. So I've uh, got a little bit of everything going on, but serverless is definitely um, my domain and, and my space. Yeah, that sounds perfect. And it really sounds like you deserve the serverless hero badge. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope I'm doing it well. <laughs> definitely, definitely. You you were on the shortlist and then there was an announcement. So, okay, I can cross you off the list. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So you talked about serverless and architecture. Being, being an architect, you definitely know, and I know that you know about the well-architected framework. It's your thing. So maybe educate us on what is the AWS well-architected framework. Sure. So um, well-architected has definitely been um, my focus and my job very recently too. Um, the well-architected framework is basically a set of guidelines or principles that kind of came out from AWS. They're centered around all different pillars of what we call a well-architected application. So um, these pillars are security, cost, optimization, reliability, performance, uh, and most recently announced at last year's reInvent was the new sustainability pillar. Um, so there's all sorts of uh, different guidelines and rules and structures to kind of roll up to all of these things to build an application that fits those needs and those pillars. Um, so we kind of look at those things and say, well, what can we help our developers do to fit into these pillars um, and to build up and to go through what we call a well-architected review, which has questions based on each of these pillars um, so that you know that you're building your application um, or building applications in your space uh, to a high standard of performance, security costs, and all of those pillars. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Yeah, I was always wondering, while I like the term well-architected review, talking about the war to discuss about the <laughs> architecture was something I need to get used to. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an unfortunate acronym. <laughs> guess you're, you could be at war with your uh, your applications, I guess. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's like, it was, yeah, let, let's do a war with this. No, we're not. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and you mentioned that there was this uh, new pillar added, the sustainability, which I think is an interesting decision and yeah, will also lead to changes in architecture because running 1 million EC2 instances to be available is not a good architecture anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. I really love that they, yeah, I love that they added that one because I do think that that should be a, a huge cost going forward. Um, there's a huge thing to think about when you're, you know, comparing cost and weighing um, your choices for your applications. Um, and, and I like that one. I, I think that there does need to be a little bit more documentation and some more info out there. Um, it's like they released it a little ahead of time without much guidance, uh, especially in the serverless space, because you mentioned EC2, but you know, the whole thing with serverless is that you only pay for what you need and you're only using exactly what you need and it scales up and down when you need things. So uh, it is kind of tough to bring in the sustainability pillar into an architecture and an environment like that. So I'm hoping for some more guidelines and things to come out around that um, in the years to come. Yeah, I think uh, the first thing is 
to use serverless for sustainability reasons, not to optimize your serverless architecture. Right, right, yep. <laughs> As you mentioned, it's about only paying what you use, so only using the CPU cycles you really need, and that's also that's that's already sustainable enough compared to always on containers or EC2 instances. So right, right, or even further, you know, if you're closer to the hardware or doing things on GPUs and machine learning and AI, it's it's a little different in that space. I think there's definitely more ways that you can optimize those architectures using um, the sustainability pillar as well. Yes. Um. How do you see the overlap be between the sustainability and the cost pillar? Because normally cost is mainly about energy you put into compute. Yeah, I think that, so the interesting thing about the, the well-architected framework and all these different pillars is uh, you do have to wonder about trade-offs. Um, so there are certain cases where, you know, you might reach optimal performance, um, but your cost is going to be higher for that because, you know, whatever you're doing, whatever your application you're building, whoever your customer is, performance might be slightly more important than um, exactly optimizing for cost. Um, and same thing is kind of true with some of these other pillars and trade-offs. So sustainability and cost um, can kind of roll up to that as well. I mean, you might um, kind of preference, you know, if it's going to be an astronomical cost in order to keep your sustainability super low, that might be a trade-off. Um, and there might be some different levers to pull and configuration to make to kind of balance the two of those things out. Um, so it's kind of about how all of these things work together rather than just kind of picking one pillar and focusing on that and then picking the next filter uh, pillar and focusing on that. Um, so it's all kind of a, a, an interesting ecosystem and a delicate balance between all of them. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Um, security is, is also a very important thing. As, as always with AWS, it's not something, how do they call it? It's not something you sprinkle on later. <laughs> so, right. and from, for me talking about um, cloud automation all the time, the well-architected framework also is something that guides you into, this is what you need to do. And it's best done using automation because then you know that it's done and you can repeat yeah. it. So what, what's your take on automation? How is it something that's nice to have or something that you really need for a good architecture? Um, I think it's a mix of both depending on where you are. So, you know, first and foremost at an insurance company, I would say security is probably the most important pillar that we're looking at that is going to come number one um, compared to everything else. Um, and it's huge when something like that is automated. Um, it's not always automated and it's something that we're, we're working towards too. Um, but it's huge when some of those things help because working in a DevOps organization, um, you know, the less kind of, of that ops piece that you have to focus on for our developers, um, the better. So, you know, my team is really focused on that enablement and making sure that some of those security things are baked into our pipelines and are kind of quote unquote automated for them so that it's not something that they really have to think about and worry about and they can focus on the business logic of their applications and not have to worry that they're insecure in the cloud or that they're deploying something that's going <laughs> to break a ton of things out there. Yeah. yeah, and if you have findings in a review, you can pull it back into your automation level and fix it for all teams. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. Yeah, so I think especially with serverless architectures, um, is there a way to build a serverless architecture without automation? Um, I think that there probably is, depending on um, kind of how you view your serverless architecture and, and what you're using. Uh, I mean, there's so many elements to building a serverless architecture. Uh, you know, you have to have some monitoring in place. We're using tools like CDK and SAM, um, not as much on the Terraform side, but some of that as well. 
Um, so you're doing some work kind of across all tools, across all platforms, across all frameworks. Um, so from my perspective, uh, you definitely see a lot of it and a lot of different ways to implement um, automation and to build serverless architectures. Uh, so I would say on a, a smaller scale, you could probably get away with not having it if it's something you're kind of just playing around with or, you know, maybe it's just a Lambda function, um, not something too crazy. But um, I think that it's definitely going to make your life easier <laughs> if you do. Um, and if you're building things that have those security, the monitoring in place, um, and, you know, in our case, going through pipelines and deploying to the cloud. Yeah, because I, I can totally get why people say, oh, yeah, starting an EC2 instance can be done using the con web console. But I have no idea how you want to build an API gateway with several Lambda functions and a DynamoDB table and uploading code to the, your Lambda functions using the web console. This does not scale in any way. Yeah, and the issue that we have is, um, you know, we only have a sandbox account that you can use the console and everything else has to be infrastructure as code and go through pipelines. So building things on the web console isn't actually something that, that we allow our developers to do because of security and compliance and access reasons. Um, so you kind of are forced into those um, sort of infrastructure as code solutions. Um, and then the flip side of that is, you know, to kind of help our developers, you mentioned API Gateway and a few of those things that they're kind of personalized, but at the same time, there is a set sort of pattern that we tend to follow um, to fit our compliance and our needs um, that we can use as a starting point. So, you know, another responsibility of my team is to own and manage some baseline patterns, some skeleton patterns for folks to be able to get those things out of the box um, and not have to reinvent the wheel every time and spend those developer hours um, trying to build up their infrastructure. They can just click a button and have that pattern ready for them. And they can, again, focus just on their business logic and not about the implementation. Yeah, that sounds perfect. It's something um, Matt um, touched on in, in the last episode and said, you're the expert on this. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, yeah. <laughs> We're definitely both in that space. I think he's more focused on the developer experience side um, and I'm over here on the, the serverless and well-architected land. <laughs> perfect. Um, so I think we, we agreed that infrastructure as code is, is a necessary thing uh, for, for architecture. What, what other um, tips or tricks do you want to give um, listeners about good architectures in a real world scenario, not something I want to try something out and I want to run a Lambda function, but production grade. Yeah. So one of the things that I really like is, uh, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm going to push for serverless, but we kind of embrace the serverless first mentality where try it with serverless first, but we understand that that's not going to be everybody's use case, right? So maybe there are situations where um, you want to use containers, you want to use other architectures and solutions. Um, that's totally fine. But I think that serverless is probably one of the most optimized. Um, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, the pay-as-you-go model, pay for, only pay for what you need, and it scales up and down automatically. Um, so it's a great fit, but for a 110-year-old company who has a lot of legacy code and large monolith services, um, you're not going to go straight from that to serverless overnight, right? So there might be some intermediate steps in between there. Um, so first I would say is kind of look at your architecture and, and see if it's a great candidate for, for serverless. Um, if it's Greenfield, I definitely highly encourage you to try something brand new in a serverless environment as well. Um, but real world scenarios, you know, it kind of falls in this umbrella of event-driven architecture where you, know, you really got to think in terms of the events that are flowing in and out of your services. So your Lambda functions, your step functions, your API gateways, everything's kind of triggered off of a series of events and there's a whole end-to-end -end flow. So it's a different way of thinking of your architecture rather than just a Java Spring Boot 
application. Um, one of the big things is, is definitely monitoring and logging. Um, one kind of pain point, I would say, of serverless is sometimes it's hard to track down exactly what's happening and where and where you're broken. Um, so having really good logging statements and monitoring or using those third-party tools, uh, CloudWatch logs is a great way to kind of track and trace and see exactly which Lambda function or which part of your step function or which call on your API endpoint might be tripping you up, might be where you're running into issues. Um, I know that's one thing we've had to pay attention to. Uh, and testing is another big one. So um, I'd highly encourage you to not <laughs> completely try to emulate all of the AWS services locally. It's going to be a lot of pain. Um, but we try to use things like uh, test events that we send in and out um, and test the different cases that we expect for those things, uh, as well as Python Lambda Local is a really great library to use uh, if you're testing your Lambda functions locally. Uh, and then just using the Moto commands, um, which is the mock photo library for your Python functions. So um, we tend to preference Python a lot. A lot of these have some um, similar libraries in TypeScript as well, uh, if you kind of preference things on that end. Um, but I would say definitely monitoring, testing, and outputting um, your flow uh, is kind of the best way to go through when you're looking at serverless. And it's kind of those gotchas in some places. Yeah, you, you brought up an interesting topic. I topic I had also on my mind is about local testing because wh whenever I talk to customers about serverless it's like yeah but how can you run our application locally and then <laughs> the thing is your application it's all moving parts and you yep. cannot run the whole application on your machine um I think first there is not um yeah a local equivalent for everything and second because of this you tend to only use services that they, are, they have a local testing simulation, right. and then you're missing out on a lot of great services. Yeah, it completely. It is definitely an issue in the serverless space. I think that that's one area that we haven't perfected yet. Um, and if you go out there and Google it, you'll see a ton of different opinions and different ways that people like to do things. And it depends based on your language you're working. Um, but, you know, we try to break things out um, and actually uh, first and in the CDK book, there's a great section on testing um, CDK constructs and things. Um, but we like to break things out in terms of similar along the lines of the book is like unit and integration tests um, and looking at those individual pieces, as well as kind of that end to end flow and how things are being passed um, and checking those events as they come in and out to see if it, it's equivalent to what you would expect to your functions um, or your step function to be doing. So. Um, it's it's come a long way, but there's definitely um, some gotchas, some spaces where we need some help. Yeah, but it's as I said, coming back to automation because you're basically forced to write tests, being it unit tests and integration tests, to test your application instead of clicking around in a running version locally and say, yeah, it works on my machine, which <laughs> I think is a good thing because it forces you to write tests. So you have tests. You could you can then put these tests in your CI/CD pipeline and make sure that it works all the time, not only when you run locally and, and click around. Yeah. And I mean, we highly encourage folks to, to utilize those lower level environments as much as you can as well, too. Um, as much as we don't have um, access in the console, we do have read-only access. So folks are able to go in and kind of deploy out what they have and, and test it out in the console and see what's coming back from messages. So um, that works too, but I would highly recommend, you know, I, I do agree with you. I like that it forces people into writing not just unit tests and integration tests, but really good unit tests and integration tests that are going to test the the really important aspects of the code that you're writing. Yeah, and I think it also tackles another 
critique I often hear with customers like, yeah, but it takes so long to update function code. So if I change a line and I redeploy it to test if it works, it takes so much time. And I say, why do you do this? Yeah. <laughs> you have unit tests. And if your unit tests are red, there's no need to deploy it. If your unit tests are green, there's no need to redeploy it because it will work. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's exactly what it should be. I mean, it's a great rule of thumb. Yeah. So, so if you deploy the same Lambda function every uh, several seconds, maybe you're doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it does take time. I would <laughs> give you that. That's something that takes time. So if you're complaining about how long it takes for serverless development, look to your unit test. Yeah, but definitely the thing. So as you said, serverless first, that's also something I recommend for my customers is like serverless first. If this doesn't work, look into containers. If this doesn't work, maybe we use EC2. But yeah. if, we only do, if we only use EC2, maybe we think about a cloud again, because that's not... Yeah, it, it's not a data center, it's the cloud. And right. if you're only using VMs, maybe you're just not ready for the cloud. Yeah, and I kind of see it almost um, as, as a half step into that space too, that, that like I mentioned earlier, you know, we have so much legacy code and really large systems, like you're not gonna go from that to serverless overnight. You know, maybe that half step is containerization first or getting things on EC2 instances and then continuing to go through those well-architected reviews and saying, well, how can we further optimize this? Are there ways that we can um, continuously kind of look at cost um, and security and some of this performance as well? Because that's the other thing that we're trying to push is that, you know, uh, a well-architected review isn't just a one and done thing. It should be a continuous part of your workflow. It should be built into those practices. Um, maybe you're not checking it every week, but maybe it's every quarter you're reviewing some of these things um, and your big applications. So it's a, a continuous ongoing discussion. Yeah. Talking about this, um, can you... Yeah, talk a little about a little bit about how these reviews work. So, is this some kind of automated process, or is there somebody from AWS coming in and beating up people, or what is it about? Yeah, so this is uh, you're hitting on exactly what my team is really focused on right now too, because you know we are saying everybody should be going through a well-architected review, and they're kind of looking at us like, well, how? Where do where do we start? Where do we go from here? Um, so AWS does have some tooling out there. The well-architected review with those questions do exist um, in the AWS console. Um, so you can actually go in and see those things. Um, some of the things that we're helping with is those recommendations. Um, what we've realized is that teams are taking hours to go through some of their pillar reviews. Um, and it sets a lot of time to sit down with your application. Um, and a lot of those things are because it's questions like, well, actually, I don't remember how I set that up, or I'm not sure how that's configured in the cloud, or oh, let me pull up the code base and look so that I can answer these questions better. Um, so my team is actually working on building out a sort of dashboard um, to kind of help give those configuration metrics along with some kind of what we call quick win um, recommendations for folks. Um, so some of that is, hey, you're coming up on a deprecated runtime for your Lambda function. Um, let's look at that because that can help you with your security pillar. Or, hey, you know, um, it looks like you're using, you have this much memory provisioned, but you're only using X amount. Uh, run the Lambda Power Tuner against it and see if there's some way to optimize some of your memory and compute and storage so you're saving some cost there and also improving your performance. Um, so that's kind of something that we're looking to help teams with um, because they need those tools to kind of help. They look at those questions and some of them are easy. Some of them are based on their operations and how their team works. Um, others are really deep into their code and exactly how they're building things out. Um, so we're trying to make that process as easy as possible. Uh, along with that, AWS does provide you with some tools and things to help. So Trusted Advisor is one 
a really good one. Um, and we've actually started seeing some new rules and events firing for looking at Lambda recommendations. So it's definitely something that I think a lot of companies in AWS is looking at more um, specifically kind of putting a lot of importance on it, kind of putting a lot of work into that space. So um, I'm excited to see where it goes. Uh, as of right now, we have some of our architects as quote unquote, uh, well-architected experts that are going into these teams and kind of helping to facilitate some of these conversations and get well-architected well reviews started. Um, with six pillars, it is a little intimidating. So some of them start with maybe just one or two, um, have those discussions, see where it takes them, um, and then utilize some of these tools to help them go through the rest of a review. Okay, so you're mainly using the tool in the console and doing kind of self-assessments and then having your own experts helping the teams do this. Um, so for customers or companies who don't have these experts, um, is there a way to, yeah, get this review done by somebody who knows what these questions mean? Because I know there are questions, but they're not very clear what they mean if you if you don't <laughs> know the answer yet sometimes. Yeah, one of the things that um, I really like, and actually um, they're hitting on a good point and to bring up here too, um, uh, AWS does have white papers. Um, there is one focused on all architected, but more specifically, um, there is, I think it's about 80 pages long, a serverless lens, uh, well-architected framework white paper. Um, so it's specific to looking at those well-architected questions in the framework uh, with a serverless lens. Uh, and it was actually just recently updated about a month or two ago. So it's the first time it's ever gone an update since it's been out there for the last couple of years. Um, and they've actually put in some really good examples. There's like six different examples of web apps, a mobile app, um, an event-driven architecture to showcase some of their more common architectural patterns um, and give you some guidance and recommendations um, on how to optimize all of your six pillars. Um, so that's one thing that I would highly encourage people to check out if they're really lost or trying to get started with those things. Uh, otherwise, I know that there's folks out there in the community builders and the heroes program that have put together blogs and articles on these things. Uh, and if you do have a contract with AWS, um, it, it's probably something that's included in their support plans as well to have an expert come and help you with these things too. Um, so there's definitely different avenues, options, um, kind of ways to find that information out there. Okay. So, so you can get AWS to do a review with you because then you get a nice report and, and things. And what I've seen with customers is then using these reports from the well-architected tool um, also as kind of documentation for your regulation. So if you need to prove that you do things the right way, you pull out the documentation from the well-architected well -architected review and say, yeah, according to the review, you're fine. So it's state of the art. And that's, I'm not sure how it's in the US. So in Germany, the computer laws and all the laws are basically always saying, you have to use state of the art, whatever this is. But if it's not state of the art, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, for us, like in insurance, that definitely helps. In our case, you know, there's definitely things like audits that come up. Um, so if you're able to pull out that documentation and say, actually, we went through a review of this. Um, and sometimes in some cases, uh, this is one thing we've been discussing too. Um, maybe in that case of provision memory, you need all that memory because it runs a batch job once a month and it has to be set up that way. Well, it's documented there with that sort of explanation as well. So if there's certain things that you have to work around or that you can't necessarily optimize for, you also have that documented in that review. So you can point to it and say, 
yes, you know, this was a finding, but this is why we can't address it. Or, you know, this is why um, it's written the way it is, or we've coded it this way, or we're using this service. Um, so it's kind of your documentation as to justifying exactly why your architecture um, is done the way it is, which is a great way to kind of have conversations around that um, and to discuss your architecture. So, so it complements uh, some kind of architectural decision records or any decision records you, you do like, okay, because of this decision, we need to have this exemption in, in the review and, and then it all makes sense in, in, in a complete picture. Yeah. And I think one of the things for us too, as a, as a large company is um, it would be great for us to eventually down the road, look at those reports and say, you know, where are we seeing patterns? Where are we seeing, is there one question that's tripping up? 40 teams. Um, maybe we can have a look at that and see if there's a way that we can improve our process in the, dev the DevOps organization. Uh, or maybe there's a lot of confusion around something. Um, so hopefully that will help us pinpoint some maybe pain points or some really aggressive workarounds people are doing to meet certain standards and things. So I, I'm hoping it's a way that also shows us um, some patterns that we can address. Okay. But it's basically a manual process doing these reviews. So, so you need to take the time and it's definitely worth the time, but you need to take the time and go through these questions. It's not some checkbox like encryption is activated and this is activated and you can automate filling out the form. Right. Uh, and I think it's, it's a mix because there's definitely pieces, you know, my team is really focused on trying to automate as much as we can. Um, we'd love to be able to get some of these recommendations based on your configuration and go in and automatically update your review for them. Um, I think that that'll help save a lot of time. But the flip side of that is that it's not completely automated because those discussions are so important to have with your team or maybe with yourself if you're just going through it individually. Um, and that's one thing that we wanted to make sure is that we want to automate as much as we possibly can, but we don't want to get to the point where we're stopping teams from having these really good discussions um, and getting down to kind of their meat of their application and having those talks with their team members. Um, and we want to continuously have those check-ins and those conversations uh, as your architecture and your code evolves. Um, so I, I think this is a case where you don't want to completely automate the entire thing, but there are pieces where you can kind of focus on that and help teams minimize the time they're spending on their review. Yeah, and what do you think, or in your experience, is the best point in time to do these reviews? Because I think they can be too early and too late. So when to do them? Yeah, and that's a great question. I mean, for us, um, it's tough because I think a lot of them fall in that late category because, like I said, 110 years old, we got a whole lot of code sitting out there. Um, and if we're just saying go through a well-architected review, they're just taking whatever they're maintaining and going through it. Um, but at the same time, you know, before you've even written any code, you're not going to want to sit down and, and do a well-architected review because there's nothing to review yet. Um, so I would say, you know, if you're as you're getting through, if this is a new application and you want to go through a well-architected review, um, I would maybe read through it and have those questions at the forefront of your mind when you're going through your architectural process. Um, not actually formally going through the review yet, um, but so that you're aware of some of the things you want to be thinking about. Uh, and then you'll kind of get to a point later on when you've built out maybe a majority of your application or maybe all of it uh, that you can kind of turn back and say, all right, you know, I've had these at the forefront of my mind while building this. Let's go back and kind of fill in some of those boxes and point out exactly where we're doing these things, maybe link to it, maybe um, talk about exactly how you built it out, or maybe it's slightly different than what you originally thought. Um, but if you have an older piece of code, I, I would say the sooner the better in that case, if, um, especially if you're looking to re-architect it soon. Um, that could be something that you could jump into pretty much at any time. 
So, so not starting on a diagram, but not when it's, but also not when it's in production. So that right. something, <laughs> something in between would, would be the perfect point. Yeah, that would be the sweet spot. Perfect. Anything else um, you want to tell us about um, great architecture on AWS? Yeah, I would say um, there's going to be a lot of opinions out there. Um, I think that you got to do your research and do what's best for you and your use case. Um, I would highly suggest, as, as Thorsten and I both seem to agree, to embrace a, a serverless first mindset, look to event driven, and kind of work your way down the chain from there if that's not something that fits your needs. Um, and depending on what you're building, I, I would say even you could probably keep a well architected review process. Um, for any sort of architecture, not just serverless. Um, there's other lenses out there as well. Um, it doesn't have to just be for a serverless application. It could be for anything you're building because all of those pillars um, just have to do with building good applications. Um, so I would say definitely read up on it, check it out, go through the questions, um, review your applications. Perfect, yeah, thanks. This has been great. Um, where can people find more about you online? Sure. Um, so a couple of different places. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my handle, I believe, is kperalt95. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, just at my name as well. Um, you can reach out to me there. Um, and I do have a couple upcoming um, events, a few more podcasts. I will be speaking at the Serverless Architecture Conference uh, in Berlin, Germany in just a couple weeks. So um, hopefully you can catch me there. If not, I will definitely be attending reInvent as well. Yeah, and I think as you're not um, called Jane Smith, um, Googling your name will bring up relevant results. <laughs> yes, yes, it should. I have a few blog pages out there on Medium and DevTO, so if you're more of a reader, um, definitely check those out. I try to keep them up to date too. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Torsten Hüger, and I hope you join me again next time for Cloud Automation Weekly.